Hey, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Adventures in Angular. This week on our panel, we have Subrat Mishra. Hello, hello. We also have Armin Vardanian. Hi, everyone. I'm Charles Maxwood from Top End Devs. Quick shout out. I'm putting together a course on how to take your career where you want it. So if you feel stuck, this is your course. Hey, folks, this is Charles Maxwood. I've been talking to a whole bunch of people that want to update their resume and find a better job. And I figure, well, why not just share my resume? So you, if you go to topendevs.com slash resume, enter your name and email address, then you'll get a copy of the resume that I use, that I've used through freelancing, through my, most of my career, as I've kind of refined it and tweaked it to get me the jobs that I want. Uh, like I said, topendevs.com slash resume will get you that. And uh, you can just kind of use the formatting. It comes in Word and Pages formats, and you can just fill it in from there. Anyway, Armin, you said you wrote this article, in fact, just sent it to us about change detection without change detection. Do you want to kind of just give us the 10,000 foot view? Because it sounds, I don't know, change detection, turning off change detection for anyway. Yeah, I'm kind of curious how this works if you mess with zone JS and stuff. Yeah, yeah, let's dive into this. So here's the general idea, like uh, in Angular, we have change detection, as we know. So the way that it works, there is this change detector mechanism that gets invoked when we have like asynchronous events, like set timeouts or promises get resolved or something like that. So in general, it works automatically. We don't have the need to kind of engage with it. It's optimized heavily, but it's not like ideally optimized because it runs change detection cycles a lot. Like most of the time it runs change detection checkings without any changes actually happening. So one way to optimize it uh, is, of course, like we use the change detection strategy. We can put the on-push strategy. It optimizes a lot, but you cannot have all your components having on-push strategy. Some components need to have like the usual change detection strategy and only the components that are kind of like engaged only in rendering stuff to the UI. We put them uh, into change detection strategy on-push, right? But even this is still not like ideally optimized. We have situations where still there will be checkings. And also if we have uh, primitive values in the component, they also will get type checked. So this only protects on, against like mutations on objects and nested objects. It's still pretty good. Most, in most of the cases, it's pretty enough to like optimize well, the rendering and change detection. But yet it's not covering the entirety of the cases. So what we can do about it, so imagine if we are using like Angular 12, we don't have like the new new stuff. What we can theoretically do, no one is going to do this and I'm not recommending to do this, but what we potentially can do, we can inject the change detector ref and call the detach method. So it has a detach method. What it essentially does, it says that starting from this component, detach this component from the change detection tree. So whenever there is a change detection cycle, when the change detector goes through the component tree and reaches this component, it will not go deeper. It will not go into this component and its children. It is not going to happen. So essentially, it just turns off change detection starting from a certain node on our component tree. So we can detach it from the automatic change detection. But every time that we perform any change to our component, like change a property or an object or an input, we can manually call like change detector refs dot detect changes. Of course, it's a tedious thing. It means that like after every method, after every callback, 
we need to call this function. So obviously this isn't something that I recommend to do. Don't please don't ever do this. But what if we could create some sort of uh, function or something that will return objects that uh, will do that for us? So we can interact with them and kind of have that functionality automatically done when we try to change this object. So this became possible after Angular version 14 when they exported the inject function. So the problem with doing what I mentioned within an object or in a function that is not inside the component is that we cannot access the change detector reference because it needs to be injected into a class. But now we have this inject function that allows us to get references to dependencies inside custom functions that we write. So if we write a function that gets to the uh, change detector ref, we now can create objects or instances of classes that automatically call that function. But the idea is we write a function that returns an object that, when its properties are changed, will call the change detector ref dot detect changes function. So how do we do this? Uh, we do this with uh, the proxy objects in JavaScript. Starting from ES6, we have proxy objects. We can turn any object into a proxy, uh, meaning that we can define generic getters and setters. So what we need is just return a simple getter from any object that we have that will just return the value. And for the setter, we just need to set the value and call the detect changes method. That's, that's it. Mm-hmm. Like literally very simple. One step further would be to make this function recursive. So now if we even provide object with nested properties, with other nested objects or arrays or anything, it will go uh, all the way down recursively and make all the inside objects into proxies that will in their turn call detect changes. Okay. Now this object is perfectly optimized. It only calls for change detection when it is definitely changed, when we have set a new value on this object. We don't even need to change the reference of the object. In my examples, I went the kind of like React route. I created a useState function. I called it useState, but it's it's irrelevant how it's called. It receives an object, turns into it into a proxy. And now I can just modify the object any way I want. And it will automatically call the change detection. And also this function detaches the change detection from my component. So if I call useState, I can only work with that object. If I have another property on my component and try to mutate it, it will not affect the UI. It will not be detected as changes. And that's perfectly okay because usually we there are developers that have this practice of creating a view model object and putting everything there. We don't really need the separate instances of this. We can also use this to kind of uh, get rid of the async pipe, not really get rid of it, but we can, if we turn change detection and put an observable into a similar function that subscribes to observable and calls change detection when it receives the new value. We can also make sure that async pipe works. Like we can write a separate function called useObservable and it will work perfectly in the same scenario. And the cool thing is, uh, no matter what is the object that we turn into a proxy like this, it will work all the way down. If we have an array and we do array push, it will trigger change detection. If we do an array pop, it will trigger change detection and so on and so on. So it's an approach of kind of like 
ditching change detection in a specific component. We, if, for example, we have a component that is so heavy and it works on lots of data, we don't even need to like convert our entire application to this. We can just select one specific component and say, you know, detection change detection here, use this reactive kind of like object and we won't get any change detection checkings on this one, starting from this one, because all the layers down will be detached from the tree. So that's the general idea. So one one question that I have, and you may have explained some of this, but I mean, why go through all of this? Is it performance or is it something else? Rather than just use the built-in change detection that comes in Angular that quote-unquote just works. Yeah. Yeah, it's mostly performance related, of course, because in general, we have no problems with just writing properties that work the same way. Uh, for most of the part, this is a sort of full experiment, but it has value. Like, we can entirely ditch, like, zone.js. We don't need zone.js if we are using this approach. Mm-hmm. We just don't need it. By the way, I have read that, for example, Vue.js is making heavy use of proxies also. So they rely on their change detection using a similar, similar approach. But the Angular has the change detector, and now you can export it, uh, sorry, import it using the inject function. It means we can just write like plugins like this. So throwing away zone.js and improving the change detection. I'm not saying this is something that's going to, you know, revolutionize everything and we're now going to throw it away, but it's, it's, it is an interesting perspective. Like It's not ideal in any way. I'm planning on releasing this small code base as a library so people can experiment with it. But I wanted to write unit tests and everything for it because it's kind of raw at this point. But when I'm done, I'm definitely uh, looking for like feedback on this. I'm sure there are going to be issues. One issue I discovered was that like inputs weren't working properly when you use this function. So there is a workaround if we implement engine changes and just call uh, the tech changes there. Now inputs will also work perfectly. We don't need to make them into a proxy. So that's not a big workaround and so not a real big deal issue. You can run into problems with third-party components. if They have uh, their change detection strategy changed or in some way. But in general, as far as I have tried it, it worked. Mm-hmm. I've tested it for several days. But obviously, of course, it's going to have issues. So we need to find workarounds for those. Yeah, I think I just want to like what I understood from what, what, I, what I just heard. Like when you're creating a component, we can have a separate method which will inject our change detection, right? You can inject a change detection and the method itself will be responsible for the change detection rather than the JS or the Angular default chain detection to run the chain detection. Yeah. Okay. I mean, uh, the issue is not uh, like the change detection itself. It's a uh, sometimes people uh, commonly think that we are optimizing change detection mm-hmm. itself. It's not the optimization of change detection. Change detection still works the same. It goes yep. to some component data and compares references and values. It works the same regardless if we do an on-push strategy or if we do just this um, approach of mine or we just leave it uh, by default. It works the same. What changes is when we call change detection. So now when we don't use any strategy, Angular decides when to call change detection. And it calls change detection on not all, but most async events. Like if you move your mouse, you'll get at least one like change detection cycle. Yeah, they did optimization. It's pretty optimized. It's pretty good for like 95% of apps. Mm -hmm. 
But if you have like this large enterprise tool with lots of data and web sockets and everything, especially if the code is uh, not very well written or you haven't done other optimization, this can cause problems because if you are having interconnected components, a change in one place will mean, you know, lots of like ticks and they will start checking everything and they will go through. And also you will get like this nasty uh, warning errors, like expression changed before it has been checked. Yeah, yeah. This, uh, pain of all yeah this is a famous error for everyone. Like, <laughs> yeah. it's That error is born out of uh, not change detection itself, but like how it works. Like you go detecting changes. So it's a process. And meanwhile, some other process like modifies something after the changes have been transferred to the view. Now Angular checks it and says, oh, you know, there's there's this problem that the data has changed again. Maybe the data model is not stable. And it throws this warning in the form of an error, which none of us like, but most of the time we try to deal with it. Like I have three or four instances in my work project application where I have this error and we don't have the time to deal with it, but it obviously shows that there is some issue in those components. But if you want like radical way to erase this would be, you know, detection detection and just call it manual. Yeah. Of course, we're not going to do that. But for example, this approach solved this because you never call change detection after without explicitly changing something so this is like the smartest approach in that. Mm-hmm. angular approach is more efficient in really like detecting everything but it's very blunt it's like it's mostly like let, let's check every once in a while if there have been yeah but instead of setting up like a set set interval for mm-hmm. every i don't know 100 milliseconds it is a bit smarter than this very blunt approach but it's still kind of blunt it's not bad. Again, I'm not like criticizing it. it it's it's a mechanism which like 95% of Angular apps work very well. Mm-hmm. Most of apps don't need like this sort of optimization. But still, it's a cool way of thinking about how like this part of Angular possibly can be changed to make it work better for uh, even like very high load front end apps. Yeah, I think if I remember, if, I, if I'm correct, correct me if I'm wrong, like... Uh... If we are going with on push strategy, then when if, if someone is changing in the input, then Angular will run the change detection. So in this case, if, if someone has suppose just want to implement your approach in a particular component, so what will be the good approach? Like detach the change, change detection and run the thing, or use on push strategy and run the things because. Unpush strategy also like responsible for input and some event will can can trigger change detection. Actually, it is we commonly say that when we put on push strategy, that it means that the component only reacts to input changes, but that's like not entirely yep. true. It's uh, on push strategy just means that it reacts to reference changes. Mm-hmm. If you have a primitive property on your component, not an input, just the usual property, but with a primitive value like a number. If the strategy if the strategy is on push and you modify that uh, number, it will still get detected. It will still like trigger a component re-render. The only thing that changes is that if you have an object and changes property without changing the reference, you won't get. If you push push something in an array, if you have, if you have change detection strategy on push, it won't update the view. It won't re-render. Mm-hmm. It's a big deal because we usually work mostly with objects. Like primitive value changes aren't that serious. We only can check them 
by uh, comparing values. We don't compare references for numbers, mm-hmm. right? We compare the values directly. So, but for objects, it's kind of different approaches. Do we compare the value of the object? If you have this simple uh, change detection, like the default change detection, it will go and compare everything in an object recursively. Yeah. So that's a problem. If you have uh, an object with nested values, like a big list with objects and those objects have sub-objects and something like that, that's a big deal that you're going to like traverse this entire tree of objects. So instead, you can just say, you know what, I will create a new reference. I will put the change detection strategy <laughs> to on push. Don't go so deep and check everything there. Just change. If the reference is the same, I don't care. If someone did a array push, I don't care about it. It's their problem. I'm, I'm, I'm saying, you know, just compare references, which is obviously way faster than going through all the values inside of an object that has like nested objects and everything. So that is the optimization. I mean, so of course, on push strategy is a good optimization. It's something that we can like reuse. We can also rely on the async pipe being triggered because it's an impure pipe. So we can just put the change detection strategy as on push and just use observables for all of our values, use an async pipe. That is also something that can be optimized because now with each uh, new object arriving, we will have new references. We won't have problems. Like, yeah, it got to be triggered a mm-hmm. lot. Don't get me wrong. Like every time change detection is triggered, the async pipe is running. Yeah. But the good thing is that it is only checking references. It's not a big deal. You, If you have like 10 async pipe instances in your component template, yeah, sure. It will just make a very simple comparison of two references 10 times once in a while. It's not, it's not ideal, like mathematically, but it's not a big deal, like from the time perspective. It's not a long process. So, okay, let's repeat that process a lot. It's not very costly. That is one approach that people use. Like, you know, Eric's Angular, this small, like, component management or NGRX component mm-hmm. store that is separate from, like, everything. It is essentially like a subject, but with methods that allow you to create a stateful component. I know people that in their projects, they, for every component, they create a component store with only data that relates to only this component. So it's not like shared data. And then just select that data as observables and put the change detection strategy on push. Like it's a perfectly reasonable thing to do. It even kind of makes the code clear, clearer. Like you have these values here separately. This is the state of this component. And this is what they write one async pipe. They don't like write lots of them. They get the entire state into one object. So there is only one reference that is going to be checked. That's not a big deal. That's that's it's really a big optimization, like 90% optimization level. So this is also a good strategy. If you are having a large mm-hmm. app, that is an approach that is that is very attractive in that way. It's not very hard. We're still working with just observables, nothing new. It doesn't have the entire overhead that NGRX store has. You don't have reducers. I don't know, different things. You just write a simple class, extend from component store. There you can write functions that transform the data and functions that get the data just injected into a component. And so that's it. You have you have reactive state. No need to write like uh, properties directly onto your component class. Hey there, this is Charles Maxwood. I'm excited because I wanted to let you know about this thing that I pulled together that I had just I've been dying to have this for years and I never felt like I could. And then I just realized that there's no reason why I can't. So um, I'm putting together a book club and we're going to read development focused books, career books, you know, uh, technical books, whatever. The first book that we're going to do is going to be Clean Architecture by Uncle Bob Martin. 
If you're not familiar with Clean Code or some of the other stuff that Bob has done, check that out. I've also talked to him on the Clean Coders podcast, which is on Top End Devs. But uh, yeah, we're going to get on. He's going to show up to some of our meetings. And what I'm thinking is we'll probably have like five or six people uh, part of the conversation along with Bob and I at the same time. And we'll just, uh, so somebody can come on, they can ask their question, and then we'll just ro- rotate people through. So we'll we'll mute one person, unmute another person when it's their turn to come on and, and be part of the discussion. So we'll do that for like an hour, hour and a half. And then the other part of it that I'm putting together is just kind of a meet and greet gather area on Gather Town. And so after the the meetup and the call, what we'll do is we'll all go over to Gather Town and you can just log in, walk up to a group and have a conversation. And that way we can all kind of get to know each other and and make friends and, and get to know people across the world. Uh, one thing that I'm finding is that, yeah, the meetups are starting to come back, but a lot of people don't have the opportunity to go to a meetup. And I really want to meet you guys and talk to you. So we're going to put all that together. It'll all be part of that book club. You can go to topendevs.com slash book club to be part of it. And I'm looking forward to seeing you there. The first book club meeting will be in December, the beginning of December. We're starting the first week of December. And um, you'll also be part of the conversation about which book we do next. I have one in mind, but I want to see where everybody's at. So there you go. Yeah, It will make sense. Like if like the indie, now it's become independent of the component, as well as as a change detection will not run for the smaller devices like uh, which have uh, lesser RAM, like suppose um, older mobile phones or someone open a lot of tab in, in the browser. So eventually it will take less memory and try to run run the application smoother. Like maybe the difference, maybe yeah, okay. small milliseconds. And if that is bigger, then people can go with this this approach. Yeah, that is sure uh, some sort of taking like look at it because if you are developing an app, it's important to have like your sort of system requirements, like what versions of browsers do I support? What is the sort of target RAM that I'm looking at? Like, do if it's an enterprise app and people are going to work it from their like office desktop, yeah. maybe it's not that big yes. of a deal. But if you write an application like I don't know, like YouTube, mm-hmm. billions of requests every like second, and you load lots of data, and uh, you have like sockets where you have live notifications, you have I don't know videos playing there and everything. So it's not in your best interest, like to re-render a lot or or, or run yep. a process that is sort of pointless most of the time. So you can open like the memory profiler tab in Chrome. Try to compare whether this like yields any difference for you. I think that uh, like. Frameworks like uh, Angular, React, and everything, they sort of yield a tool for kind of like working with, uh, like creating a UI, but how you are going to sort of serve it to your users is a different question. Like you have, for example, people will say, don't write a personal website or something or landing page in Angular, but you can still do that and just use a static site Mm -hmm. generator like Scully or docusaurus if you're on react and you write what you are familiar with and export it as a static website that is also an option yep. so differs on the scale differs on the actual problem that we are trying to solve hmm. so one more question like to be like i just want to wrap it up in my head so is this strategy also going to work in the server side if, like the with angular universal because i think that's 
I think it's not making sense. I haven't, uh, to be honest, I haven't tried it, but from the top of my head, I don't see a problem. Like, we can inject change mm-hmm. detection strategy wherever we want. The inject function doesn't appear to have problems with server-side rendering. So essentially, yeah, initially you will get like null values, but it's kind of like whatever you expect with server-side rendering anyway. I don't think there's got to be a problem, but uh, yeah, that's an interesting question. I I think when I have time, I will try to check how it interplays with like Angular Universal. Mm -hmm. Yep, yep. I'll also try to go through Article again and try to implement something. It's a it's a good uh, good approach though. I will when I publish it to GitHub, I will put a link in the chat. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was gonna ask. It sounds like you can kind of pull this in and do some work on how you want to do change detection if it's different from from how the rest of this works. But it sounds like mostly you're just introspecting on objects. But yeah, the the trick being, I have to go and decide where I want to inject this where I want it. And so then the, the, the question becomes, how automatic can I make it? And the other question is, how do I know that this is the right place to be injecting this instead of just letting Angular do the change detection the way it does? Because up to a certain point, I find with most performance optimizations, it doesn't make a major difference. It's just on those cases where things kind of go beyond the, you know, the reasonable responsiveness that, that you're going, okay, I need a performance boost here. And where we're talking about Angular that generically and generally runs in the browser, it's just down to, you know, how efficient the browser is and how efficient the computer and operating system are that it's running on. So, yeah, if you have a slower phone and you know that it has performance issues, you'd be putting it in place for, you know, those specific users. And then everybody else just kind of benefits it from being faster, but not so much faster that you necessarily feel it. And so, yeah, I'm trying to decide, Okay, this sounds cool. It sounds like something that I may need in certain spots, but yeah, how do I decide where to put it? Like, how do I decide which spots to put it in or which components to apply it to, if that makes sense? Yeah, I understand your point. Well, essentially about this over-optimization, I completely agree with you. It's not like I wasn't yeah. going to like change my apps to use this. Obviously. Why not? But uh, <laughs> because it's experimental. <laughs> but you know, the thing is, like from the developer, like it's developer experience perspective, you also, you can realize that with this approach, you don't need pipes and you can write functions directly in mm. the template. Because the problem with the templates, with functions in templates is that they're going to be invoked all the time, right? Every change detection cycle, you need to call the function to understand whether the value has changed if you need to update or not. Mm-hmm. So that is why Angular says, no, no, never call functions in the template, use pipes. Now you can just call functions in the template. You don't have change detection. Change detection is going to run only when we definitely know that the value has changed. So there is no need to like think about it. So you don't need pipes. And it's like immediately a better approach. Like you don't need pipes. Pipes is some overhead. We need to explain it to other developers, like newcomers. Why, why do we need pipes? And so on. So not only for pipes, like from the top of my head. It's also it also like makes it uh, it can potentially make it easier to work with like observables. Just wrap them into another function, return a proxy object that call change detection when it is subscribed from the sorry from the function. This inject function mainly for me it started when I re- I saw an interesting example when someone wrote a RxJS 
operator, sort of, that worked like take until, but it was kind of aware of the component that it was inside of. So it was the same as take until, but you, but he didn't create like a subject and called it on engine. What, what they did was write a function, inject the change detector and change detector uh, also has this on destroy hook inside. It works when this particular instance of change detector is destroyed. And of course it coincides with the on destroy function on the component. So they created the subject. They uh, use the take until, but they called that subject inside that function. So you just can drop this operator on any stream in an angular component say like take until destroy and that's it it works so that got me thinking if we have if we ha- if we can access change detector that's how i started doing this if we can access change detection in any function like this and like why not try to call change detector manually when we know when we need it and just discard it from the component why not so i just got into trying to make this work and surprisingly for me, I thought that they're going to hit something that will be like unpassable, that I, can, I couldn't do this. But apparently uh, I, I haven't found any like blocking thing yet. Maybe still out there, there is some use case when this is com- becomes completely unusable. I don't know of that yet. As far as I've tested, as far as some other developers I know tried it out, it worked pretty well. I like I like that they exported like the inject function. It provides like new horizons on really reusable pieces of code. Now we can write functions that access dependency injection. That's really mm-hmm. cool. That really really opens huge possibilities. Yeah, I think one mm, according to me one best place to use it. Uh, all the components who are already have like on push strategy or they have detached the change detection and they are running detect change manually on every method call or on some action they can just use that whenever they will set some state the the data itself will handle and re-render the data so that so they need not need to go and run detect change every time on some method so this will the like one of the good places so so from from their coding point of view, the headache of running detect change is gone. They just need to set the value and it will run that change detection and it will render. You are correct. And I think that a pretty good use case for this, if you are writing a UI library, UI component mm-hmm. library, and you if you are if you are writing a UI component library, usually you don't use like third party components, right? You're writing your own yep. from scratch. So you can optimize them a lot with using like this approach. You know, you, you are, you don't use third party components. So if you use this approach, you're not messing with any other, uh, library change detections. If they have something inside them that mm-hmm. will cause a bug or something, you're just writing from scratch and you are not messing with the other parts of the app because you are only detaching starting from this component. So everything upper or, or its siblings are safe. You're not messing with them with detaching this part of the tree. So if you're writing like a component library or maybe some specific like a widget or something that is going to be reused. So this is an approach you can take and say, you know, my component is completely optimized from the point of view of change detection. You can just drop it anywhere. I have seen this issue like I was working with PrimeNG a lot. I, I have mentioned it previous previous episodes. One issue that they got correcting a lot was that initially they just wrote lots of components without thinking about change detection. Some of the components got really huge, like date tables. 
like really huge mm-hmm. because it has all sorts of features like reordering, reordering columns, reordering rows, uh, adding dynamic columns, dynamically changing data and everything and sorting. And with all of that dynamic stuff going on, they had problems with change detection. They actually rewrote the entire thing. They wrote a new component called PrimeNG table. It was data table previously and enforced on push strategy there. So they really hit problems with change detections with all of that dynamic stuff going on. They they just abandoned the previous component they wrote on push. And if you go into source code there, or for example, in Angular material also has a table component. If you go into there, you will see lots of calls to like change detection manually. Because in some cases, it made more sense if you have on push strategy, you have changed some object, you just call it manually. You don't leave it up to like Angular because it, it's going to be messy. It's going to be checking lots of same properties and objects all the time. So why not just detach change detection, yeah. still write the code as you are writing normally if mm. it was in default change detection, but have the benefit of like ideally fixing those changes for you. That's one particular like use case yeah. for this approach. Cool. One other thing that I'm wondering about is just testing, right? So I, I mean, I don't, how do I put it? Like, I tend to not like to test my library code. So if I pull in Angular and it's doing change detection, if I do something that triggers a change, I'm not always testing that it cha- triggers the change, right? I'm more or less trusting the the framework unless I'm doing something that's a little bit outside the norm. Do you kind of see that same approach with this? Or I don't know. Well, the main thing about this is usually we also manually call the detector when we write tests if we need to kind of like change check the template the thing with this is that kind of like if you have inputs like if you have change detection on push like for example which is a pretty popular thing out there right especially with libraries if you have change detection on push and if you have like change detection cycle in your app the third party components might not like be checked at all right uh-huh. in some certain case if inputs are not changed it will just not go down that component never but the issue is that usually we don't like unit test anything about it we just presume it works right if you are talking about the unit testing or some like that perspective i think it would be harder to kind of like test this library itself because like how how do you test a function like this yeah sure it returns a proxy it's it's not it's not a big deal you can just check that it's a proxy you can mock the angular change detector and be done. Let's say, oh, yeah, this function has been called and a change detector change detector is not my problem. It's an angular function. I just want to call it. If I test that it calls it on all of the scenarios that I come up with, it's okay. But now there's this implicit problem. What if you have like child components and what if you don't want that thing in your child components? Uh, is it possible like to reattach something if you want? So those are scenarios that you really need to test this mm-hmm. function in a Angular environment, right. like come up with the component and with template scenarios, because essentially you are working with templates. Who cares if um, a property on a class has changed just in, in a vacuum? We want it updated in the UI. So what? So the real unit test that this thing needs is like 
have this big template, lots of scenarios with NGEF statements, with NG4 statements, with custom directives, with everything, and see how it works out for all these scenarios. Like you have, you have a directive. It also relies on change detection, right? So if you write something like NG on changes in a directive, is it going to work? Is it going to work here? Do you now need to manually call uh, change detector in directives, like on NG on changes or something? And those are all cases that need to be checked. As far as I've seen, for example, like if you trigger the change detector upwards, it's okay. But what if you have something changing inside of a directive? Like it's not, it's not notifying anyone. So maybe you need to use that same approach in the directive, for example, or in a pipe. Those are the cases going to be unit tested hard if, mm-hmm. if I'm going to like release it to even on an experimental level. I'm working on it. I've written like the basic tests, mm-hmm. but yeah, that only covers like it, like it technically covers what I want to have covered, but. I'm kind of like meddling with a process that is a bit weird, like change detection. So I need to try also to think, what will that change detection? What if I detach a change detector from some node on the component tree? How's it going to affect like the deep parts? Is it usable in this scenario? What are the real use cases? Right. Yeah, that all, all needs to be covered. Or you can say like, my code never going to break. It's a feature. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I've heard it only really works if you are like writing your own. <laughs> yes. If you're if you're outsourcing, you really gotta perfect your like acting skills <laughs> for, for that to work. Yeah. Or oh, it's always it's I think it's uh, nowadays it's mandatory to kind of write tests because it'll going to help us later to make our life easier. We have this project going on for four years. Haven't written like unit tests it's it's not an issue on our part like we're okay with writing unit tests but you know this is how outsource Mm -hmm. works like the client wants it and and they don't really care about unit tests okay you have like qa engineers they are working they have written some end-to-end tests they're checking for it it's okay just we just want the the code delivered as fast as Mm -hmm. possible obviously long term not having unit tests Mm. uh, also gonna hinder like uh, release plans if you've got a bug you get a bug but if if your app is mostly not changing too rapidly if you if you know that in 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 a certain large portion of the app you have this code that is very unlikely to ever change like yeah sure Uh, from the perspective of a client yeah you know screw it tests who, who wants them this this is done we have tested it it's okay if you're not gonna change it but yeah i like unit tests i I always say that if you can write unit tests you should write unit tests yeah yeah the ideal and the real scenarios always differs on the situations so yeah just for the developers is what i what i notice a lot like especially in people that write blog posts and articles we always kind of i'm also guilty of this like lots of time I assume like an ideal scenario where, oh, you know, you can write this beautiful abstraction that will fix everything for you. And it sounds really cool on paper. Maybe it worked in my project, but what like don't realize at that moment is that, you know, people are going to spend time on it. Maybe it's not sort of financially viable for their mm. team. Like they cannot abandon their approaches and just do this. Sometimes you kind of like want for articles that explore bad code, not just say, oh, you know, this is bad, don't do this, but say, you know, you have this bad situation, here are some okay workarounds 
or like iterative approaches on how you can fix it. Because lots of approaches are really radical. Like you can open an article about some bad practices and say, oh, this is horrible, this is horrible. Well, you know, I'm stuck with a code base that has all these horrible things. What are the ways that I can at least, I don't know, mitigate the problems at the very least? Uh, we shouldn't presume like ideal scenarios. That's yeah. what I say. Yep. Cool. Well, is there a place where people can go check this out, look at the code, see what you're doing? Probably next week or the other, I will... I will at least upload what I have to GitHub. Uh, all the examples are in the article. Okay. Yeah. We'll make sure we link to the article. And then, yeah, if you have stuff on GitHub. Yeah, I will share. It. All right. Cool. Let's go ahead and do our picks since we're kind of getting toward the end of the hour. Have you ever wished that you had a group of people that were just as passionate about writing code as you are? I know I did. I did that for most of my career. I'd go to the meetups. I'd try and create other opportunities. And it was just really hard, right? The meetups, I got some of that, but they were only like once or twice a month. And it was just really hard to find that group of people that I connected with and, and really wanted to, you know, talk about code a lot, right? I mean, I love writing code. I think it's the best. And so I've decided to create this community and create it a, a worldwide community that we can all jump in and do it. So we're going to have two workshops every week. One of those or two of those every month are going to be Q&A calls, right? Where you can get on, you can ask me or me and another expert questions. Uh, the rest of them are going to be focused on different aspects of career or programming or things like that, right? So it'll go anywhere from like deployments and containers all the way up to managing your 401k and negotiating your benefits package. We'll, we'll cover all of it, okay? And then we're also going to have meetups every month for your particular technology area. So we have shows about JavaScript, React, Angular, Vue, and so on. We're going to have meetups for all of those things. I'm going to revive the freelancer show. We'll have one about that, right? So you can get started freelancing or continue freelancing if that's where you're at. And I'm working on finding authors who can actually do weekly video tutorials on something for 10 minutes that's related, to, again, to those technology areas so that you can stay current and keep growing. So if you're interested, go to topendevs.com slash sign up and you can get in right now for $39. When we're done, that price is going to go up to $75. And the $39 price gets you access to two calls per week. The, the full price at $150, which is going to be $75 over the next few weeks, that price is going to get you access to all of the calls and all of the tutorials and everything else that we put out from Top End Devs along with member pricing for our remote conferences that are coming up next year. So go check it out, topendevs.com slash sign up. Subra, do you have some picks for us? Yes, I think I'm reading a pretty famous book. It's Atomic Habit by James Clear. Oh, so good. Uh, yeah, it's a lot of people advise me. I, I bought one. Uh, but again, I, after a long time, I started reading and it's, it's pretty good. It's pretty practical. And you can, after reading one chapter, you can go ahead and apply that you know, with your life. So that's, this is the kind of book. So I'm liking it. Haven't finished it yet, but yeah, I'll keep on. So that's cool. a big for, for this week. Nice. Yeah, it's a terrific book. I need to go back through it. What I want to do, I, so I usually listen to the books on Audible. But what I've started doing is I've started picking up books and either getting them on Kindle or getting them in hard, like hard copy. And the reason is, is because then I can sit down and I can kind of go through it at my own pace. And like yeah. Atomic Habits is one of those books where you kind of go through a section of the book and then there are things that you can do to do better, right? And so I, I've gotten to the point where I don't want to just read the book and then pick out a couple of things to do. I want to go through and like implement 
stuff. Mm-hmm. And so I'm digging that. I have a related pick to that in a minute. But Armin, do you have some picks? I haven't been reading a lot recently, but I really got hooked on the House of the Dragon series. Oh, is it good? Oh, it's it's terrific. Like I hope they don't pull a Game of Thrones on us again. <clears throat> Although technically the story is finished, I know how it ends. Uh-huh. Because I read the book, but uh, I really like the like TV variant mm-hmm. a lot. Really cool. It's not as complex as Game of Thrones, which probably makes it more appealing as a TV show. But the first season was really, really solid. Solid. So if you're if you liked Game of Thrones, or especially if you liked Game of Thrones in general and hated the last seasons, which pretty much everyone <laughs> did, like check the House of the Dragon. It's really interesting. Yeah. I have to say that, so I, I'll admit to having watched Game of Thrones. And the, the parts that I really loved weren't the, the kind of fantasy world parts, you know, so the dragons and the, all that stuff, whatever. It really was the characters and the intrigues and the, the, the deep political machinations and all that stuff. That's the part of it that I really enjoyed, right? And yeah, so the, the part, the, the reason I, I didn't care for the end of it personally, is because all of this kind of comes together to not really resolve in a way that has to do with all that stuff at the end. But yeah, hopefully House of the Dragon is better. Well, House of the Dragon has all the things you mentioned, uh-huh. like characters are really interesting and the political intrigue. Again, not as complex uh-huh. as Game of Thrones, but who cares about the complex like segregation of right. plots if you don't get an interesting resolution, yep. right? Better have one significant, interesting storyline that has a satisfying ending, yeah. which I know it has because I read the book. But <laughs> so if you have got like great actors and you have got this all cool visual effects, visually, visually it's just yeah, amazing, just on the same level or even better than Game of Thrones, and you got get way more dragons. Yeah, <laughs> well, for me, like the dragons, the ice zombies, I can't remember what they called those things anyway the white yeah the white walkers and on all the rest of it it just it raised the table stakes for the characters right because there were existential threats and there was crap that just could plain go wrong and you were done and so so that makes it interesting too because you can throw a twist in there that isn't far-fetched and then make everybody deal with it and so that that's fun to watch too along with uh ooh, we may we may or may not be able to take the throne or whatever. Anyway, did you have any other picks or should I go? Okay. I'm going to toss out some picks here then real quick. So the first one is I usually pick a board game. To be perfectly honest, I've kind of been doing some insane travel and stuff lately and I just haven't quite gotten into it. So I'm going to skip it this week. I feel bad doing that because I love picking board games. I am going to be doing TimpCon again. I guess I should pick that. So I think I started doing the game picks when I did TimpCon last year and I'm volunteering. A friend of mine owns a, a store, a game store. And so this is a local board game convention and we teach people how to play these games, you know, over off to the side. And so I'm doing like a four hour shift and then I get free ticket to the game convention. And so, yeah, so I'm going to pick that. They have these game conventions all over the place. So if you're looking for one, I just do a quick board game convention or board game conference and see what you can find. The way that a lot of them work is it's not so much you go sit in a session where they talk about board games. It's mostly that they have a whole bunch of tabletop games and board games, and you just pay to get in, and you can bring your own games. You can use the ones there. They usually have a big pile of games you can go 
you know, check one out and play it with your friends. So you play, you figure out how to play it, and then you uh, put it away. And you you could just go all day and do it. And it's a ton of fun. And then, yeah, this particular area where showing people, hey, these five games are pretty popular. Here's how you play them. And so you sit down and you have somebody that already knows how to play to walk you through it. So yeah, so I'm going to pick board game conventions. And then the other the other picks I have, so related to the books, going through through the books and implementing and understanding and going deep, I'm putting together a book club for developers. And the first book we're going to do is Clean Architecture by Uncle Bob, by uh, Robert C. Martin. And he's actually agreed to come to some of the book club meetings. It's all going to be online. If you go to topendevs.com slash book club, you can sign up. And yeah, it's going to be awesome. We're just going to get in and go deep on this stuff. We're going to do it over Zoom or something like it. I don't think I'm going to use Zoom. I think I'm going to use something that looks a little bit more like uh, conference streaming software. And whatever I use, it'll allow 10 people, you know, 8, 10 people to get on the call with us and we'll just rotate people in and out. So if you have something you want to share with the group or you have a question you want to ask Bob or if Bob's not there, you know, a question you want to ask the group or a discussion you want to have, then you can just raise your hand and we'll bring you on and we'll just rotate people through. And that way we can have a conversation about the book. Um, But then we'll also have some kind of forum or community where you can get on and say, hey, I picked this up out of the book and I'm implementing it in my code. So... Um, I really like that. And then on the personal end, yeah, like books like uh, Atomic Habits or The Miracle Morning or things like that. I, I really love those and just getting into them and kind of breaking down the strategies and, you know, making life better. So I'm going to pick that. Yeah, I've got so many other things coming. Angular Remote Conference, I'm moving that to April. So if you want to speak at a conference in April, that would be awesome. Or if you want to come to the conference in April, you can do that. And then I'm also spinning up premium podcast so you can get it without the sponsored messages in it and then i'm looking at with most of the shows finding people who want to do premium episodes for like 10 minutes and just talk about a concept from angular or things like that i'm going to start out with the the bigger shows i have which are ruby and javascript and then angular's up there right so if you know if i find i have time you know i'll be putting those out but you'll get a bonus episode that gives you some insight into angular that's just a real quick thing as part of the premium uh, setup. So anyway, I'm trying to think through what else I have to pick, but I think that's pretty much it. So yeah, well, this was cool, Armin. Let us know when that GitHub's up and we'll wrap it up here. Until next time, folks, Max out. Bye-bye. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit dot com to learn more.